Hello, and welcome to episode three of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Megan Shea. Megan is an award-winning documentary and branded content director and producer. Together with her partner in business and in marriage, Mike Rogers, Megan heads up Persistent Productions, which has offices in Massachusetts and Singapore. The driving force of Persistent Productions is to meld the art and science of storytelling in order to inform and inspire. Filmmakers Collaborative is proud that Megan is an FC member, and we encourage media makers of all stripes to visit us at filmmakerscollaborative.org to discover the full range of programs and services we offer. And now, on to my conversation with filmmaker Megan Shea. So Megan and I first spoke, I was looking at my notes, and it was almost two years ago when I did an interview for the blog, the Filmmakers Collaborative blog. So I want to welcome you as one of the first interviewees to the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you making the time. Um, I, one thing that stood out from the first time that we chatted uh, was I found your story uh, around your, how your arts background helped to inform your, not just your worldview, but also uh, your idea of using filmmaking and documentary filmmaking kind of as a form of advocacy. So going back maybe even a little bit further for you, I'm curious where your initial inspirations came from to become a filmmaker or even before that to become an artist in general. I would say that I always had a predisposition for the arts, like as far back as I can remember as a um, a child, I can remember kind of like being um, artistically inclined, like being really interested in drawing and ceramics and sculpture. And I can even, you know, I can pretty clearly remember all of my art teachers back to uh, kindergarten and first grade. So I'll say I was always kind of, I don't know if I was conscious of my inspiration then, but I was always um, kind of interested in the creative um, visual fields. And as that kind of grew and, you know, you look for ways to kind of express that um, through your education and through your kind of professional development. Um, For me, it was always kind of a question of like what channel it would be. Like, would I be uh, wanting to kind of go down a road where it was more kind of visual um, painting or would it be something more design-based? And for me, what's so wonderful about filmmaking and why I think it's been just such a good fit and so interesting is that it kind of brings in so many of the other art forms into filmmaking. Even if you are not kind of the one in charge of that aspect of the filmmaking, you're collaborating with all of these other artists. And for me, that was just something that once I kind of caught hold of, that you could kind of bring all of these other art forms into one um, art form. I think it's why film is the greatest art form. No, uh, not to, not to hire, not to make a hierarchy between the forms, but for me, getting to work with other artists as part of uh, my work is something that I really love. And um, uh, the collaborative nature of filmmaking is something that I think is also really beautiful. What art medium were you spending most of your time in prior to getting into filmmaking? Sure. I was, so I was trained um, in the fine arts as a painter um, in oil painting. And so that was kind of my, I would say, like my, you know, classically trained, I guess, if you can say that. Um, so a lot of drawing and creating like from life. And so I think there's a real kind of crossover where they kind of talk about like verite filmmaking, but also kind of, I was trained in a very kind of verite, realistic, artistic, you know, training. And so um, combining that kind of 
training where you're looking at the visual world as closely as possible in kind of renderings or, or painting. Um, and then seeing, um, once I had my first kind of taste of documentary filmmaking, how that could be applied with a more, I would say kind of a liberal arts perspective. I think the documentary brings so many other fields into the fold in terms of social justice issues, history, you know, media, contemporary politics. I kind of loved that all of those things kind of fell into this sphere um, as I started learning about documentary filmmaking. When you think about storytelling, particularly in the documentary mode, do you find yourself thinking more about how to convey the story visually first, or are you thinking more in a, in a more linear fashion around this, this is the story, these are the people impacted by the story, and you know, we're going to move from point A to point B? It's probably kind of um, a toggling back and forth. Even though I'm trained in the visual world, um, I love research and I love kind of information gathering through conversations. And so I think it's really a combination of things. And I'll also say that I'm not like, a, I'm not a DOP, I'm not a cinematographer. And so I really kind of rely heavily on those who are experts in that um, arena to kind of say, this is what, you know, this is what I'm thinking and how would you build this out um, visually? And so I definitely see it as um, something that is kind of a dual approach from the onset, you know, something that's very, um, story based, but that story is going to be, you know, told visually. So how's that going to look and um, how, how best to portray that? You know, what's the visual style going to be? I remember you making mention about one of your early experiences working with Peter Jennings mm-hmm. on a, um, a series, mm-hmm. um, longer form sort of public affairs. Tell me how that was formative for you. Sure. So yeah, that was some of my earliest experiences um, coming out of university was as part of a researcher, as an intern and then researcher, um, working with a documentary film company called uh, Washington Media Associates that did a lot of frontline and Peter Jennings kind of work. And so that was really a wonderful training in kind of the journalistic aspects of documentary filmmaking. Um, It was tape-based media then as well. So kind of logging footage and learning about the industry in a way that was a bit more of a slow form, I would say, compared to now where everything can be cut digitally. And what I really found so meaningful as a young person working on some of those productions is the social relevance that the productions had. And so a couple times when um, one of the work, one of the pieces that we were working on was around Abu Ghraib and the information um, that was coming out around prisoners and how they were being detained. And then also uh, the second piece that I worked on was around microloans to women in low and middle income countries. And for both of those productions, again, I had very, very minor roles. This was really me kind of seeing how the industry worked from a fledgling perspective. But I remember the the response after the, the pieces were screened, um, where audience members were kind of getting in touch with the production company saying, how can I help? And there was this response to the work that was pretty immediate and significant. And that was something that really stayed with me that you can kind of create these pieces um, of film, of media, of art, um, but then they also kind of live in this socially active space. And that was something that I really wanted to kind of pursue in my own work was that tension between kind of creating a piece of art, but also creating something that had social meaning and was socially significant or relevant in the context that you were producing it, such that it could produce 
hopefully maybe a, you know, a positive re- response or a social impact around the issue that you were producing for. Any particular films stand out as being inspirational for you in the documentary realm, you know, early on, or any particular documentary filmmakers whose work you particularly admire? Oh man, there's so many. I think that, and of course I'm like, names aren't coming to, um, to me very quickly, but you have kind of some of the classics, the Werner Herzog, um, the woman that I worked under, Sherry Jones for documentary film, um, in the kind of frontline space. I think some of the, just the verite pieces that I've loved that have been less kind of socially shaped, the Bill Cunningham portrait, the New York Times fashion photographer. I just thought that was such a beautiful kind of portraiture rendering. And then I think some of the more, I would say, snazzy, some of the stuff that's been a little bit kind of bigger, bigger budget, bigger production, um, like Blackfish that has had kind of an impact on some of the, you know, treatment of animals in captivity. And I'm going to think of a hundred more as soon as we get off the phone. That's okay. Feel free, just, <laughs> feel free to just let the stream of consciousness flow. And if they randomly come up while we're talking about something else, let it rip. <laughs> Tell me how Persistent Productions came together. I was working um, in Washington, D.C. And my business partner, also now husband, um, was working in Washington, D.C. as well at National Geographic Television. And that was just a real... Um, a wonderful environment to uh, Washington, D.C. when we came out of school and graduate school. It was like, there's so many great productions happening there. There's so much um, politics, yes, of course, but also kind of news and um, television being produced there. It was just a really fun environment to kind of um, come of age. And uh, he works more in the cinematography side of things. Um, And so we started working on projects together. It was kind of a, a natural synchronicity in terms of having similar interests. And so we started working on some projects somewhat informally and then thought, I think we could keep doing this. And so what was interesting was we were both, I would say, trained in kind of more traditional um, documentary filmmaking in the sense that we were making pieces when we were like very young in the industry um, that were like headed for television. It was like that was where the end game was in terms of where it would be distributed. But then as we started Persistent Productions, we were really entering a world where the iPhone, I don't know if you've heard of this piece of technology, but the iPhone was invented. I struggle um, with it daily. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, Facebook and YouTube were kind of um, being realized in whole different ways. And so we kind of unknowingly started to be at the forefront of creating kind of branded content and content for streaming and digital distribution, not because we necessarily intuited the changes that would happen, but we were using this kind of training in documentary production and that love of like authentic storytelling to create work that was for these new kind of mediums and markets. And so while some of our our first productions together were around, you know, hour-long pieces for educational distribution around kind of like democracy, big topics like hour-long docs, um, some of the other work that we were doing that really started to make persistent productions, not just making independent documentary films, but kind of a business, um, started to be in this branded content and short form space. And that was, you know, over 10 years ago. And as we did that, we thought this is a really nice cadence to have the kind of like the big meaty film, independent film pieces that we're working on. But as I'm sure your listeners know, that take those take a long time. And they're also very hard to um, pull off as your single stream of income. 
Um, and so we started kind of diversifying um, our offerings. And that was just a fit that we found really exciting. We got to do kind of different types of filmmaking with different types of clients, different types of collaborators. And I think it's really created one, a sustainable company, but also I think um, has given us some different influences that we might not have had if we were only working in one kind of field, if we were only working in um, documentary. Yeah, in certain circles, the very fact that you use the word financially sustainable in the same sentence as documentary, the the purists would run you out of town. I know, exactly. How dare you? I know. Well, we we consider ourselves a double artist household, so we knew quite early on that if we were both going to be in this field that it wasn't going to be, um, especially when we were first, you know, in the field. And as again, your listeners know, like the dwindling pool of resources for um, long form, fully funded films is highly competitive, hard to, hard to plan um, a life income around. And so as we started to really kind of hone our business offerings um, and kind of this branded content, we thought, oh, this is really fun. And this could really, um, this could really kind of enhance both sides of what we do, both in the documentary, but also like the filmmaking for brands and for kind of partnership model pieces. And you guys have kind of a unique geographic footprint. Are, do you still have the office in Singapore? We do. Um, we so have you're, you're also, just to give the listeners a, a sense of geography, uh, you're also, are you in Rockport, Massachusetts? We're um, um, just outside of Boston, about 45 minutes north on, yeah. um, in Rockport. And we started this kind of um, unusual geographic footprint of you know, over 10 years ago, where we moved to Singapore from Washington, D.C., and started kind of taking independent filmmaking jobs and client-based work out of Singapore, as well as um, not being able to kind of totally quit the East Coast of the U.S. And so we developed this cadence where um, we were moving back and forth pretty fluidly. And so we, you know, four or five, maybe more times a year, would be back and forth um, between Singapore and the U.S. and kind of really honed our, I'd say, like international um, production skills. So while we were based in Southeast Asia, um, we took a number of projects kind of Asia-wide and in Central and South America. So for a number of years, we were just on the road most of the time. We have an editor who was based in Singapore, who's now based in in California, um, and similarly an associate producer, Singapore, Boston-based. And so in some ways, we were well positioned for the pandemic, and that we've been doing. We've been working virtually for a long time. Um, in other ways, we still had you know jobs on the books out of our Singapore office that were have been a little hard to um, or have required a little bit more ingenuity to finish. And so it's been a big change for us, but one that I think been also interesting in terms of moving from a model of being like highly globally mobile to being very very locally based and uh, and everyone has had to, you know, shift dramatically. So why Singapore? So my um, partner, uh, husband, Mike, um, he um, grew up in Southeast Asia. He grew up between Thailand and Singapore and really interested in kind of returning to a more um, global vantage point perspective lifestyle. And so it was also at a time where Singapore was really incentivizing and inviting in um, media um, media companies. And so you have like BBC, uh, National Geographic TV, who have bases, you know, small, small um, compared to the US, but um, they'd be basing their Southeast Asia productions there. So it, um, between that and kind of like a highly 
highly educated, skilled workforce in Singapore. There's a lot of people coming out of school with media degrees there. So it's, it's an interesting place for media um, from an international perspective, a pretty young, um, young country and young workforce. But it was you know, a really wonderful place to start kind of producing out of and to grow the company. I would imagine in the, in the world of branded content, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as branded content creators, that type of exposure could be a pretty meaningful differentiator also. I think so. You know, I think as, especially now, everything seems to be more um, hyper-local, but also global at the same time, if that duality uh, makes sense. It, it has been a really, I think, interesting differentiator. And we've also, we really love the international work um, and collaborating internationally. Um, you know, we have this, you know, as filmmakers, this unique kind of language, you can go anywhere in the world and, um, you know, there's people doing, there's people doing film. And so you have this really interesting connection point and, uh, and way to kind of engage in an interest. If you love your work, like we do, it's like an interesting way to engage with people. Once you get to a new place, it's like, okay, we're all here to make this thing together and work together. And, um, we, you know, we certainly have areas where we've worked, um, a number of times now. So we, I think that has been, um, in the branded content space, a good differentiator. We have kind of certain cities or certain countries where we kind of have a crew there that we work with repeatedly. And it's been really fun to drop in, you know, every year, every other year to, to work with them. Can you think of any particular, uh, skills or methodologies that you have to call on more frequently and more, more readily? when you're in the branded content space as opposed to the documentary space? Yeah, I think there's a lot more, I think humility is required in everything, but in different ways. Um, You know, when you're doing your independent documentary, typically you're in small crews. And if you're working with the director or smaller crews, I would say, people are more comfortable with being fluid. I think that's more of a, a natural cadence of a documentary shoot and kind of following the action. And you kind of have to let your... Um, be humble to your to your subjects and you know what what they're doing and kind of follow their lead. And I think in the branded content space, you need to be a little bit more humble to the client that's paying you to be there. And um, so you're not necessarily taking as the you are taking cues from the director of the branded content piece, but it's very much a shared a shared space with the client and making sure that they are coming from their area of expertise, which might be their province. You know, we do um, a bit of work in kind of like tourism and location-based branded content. And so they might be an expert in like their province in China. And so you want to make sure that you're breaking down and bringing them on board with the film, what's going on from a film perspective, Mm -hmm. um, while making sure to like honor kind of their area of expertise. And so I think just being very communicative about the process with people who might not be in the film space. um, And I would say that that's where we, we do do some like more traditional advertising work, but really the branded content space is kind of where we thrive, where it's not product focus specific. So it might be a story about something that has overlapping values with the brand. And so we're still very much working with um, real people who are kind of doing what they, what they typically do with more kind of structure around it. Yep. And that's where I think the skills of bringing them over from the documentary space have really, have really helped us. It's interesting on the consumer level, Mm-hmm. As people get more, I think a little bit more sophisticated mm-hmm. or, or around almost their expectations of messaging from, you know, for-profit organizations, companies, mm-hmm. et cetera. There almost seems to be two paths on the commercial side. There's almost an irreverence. Like you mm-hmm. and I all know this is, a, this is an ad and we know mm-hmm. what ads really are. So let's kind of be a little bit over the top with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the 
brand, a lot of the branded content that I think is hugely impactful. It's along the lines of what you just mentioned. You know, it, it taps into sort of the brand values and kind of the brand culture. Yeah. Um, and what you're getting is a very soft sell. Yeah. Most of the time with a, um, a heavy component of, of, of a lifestyle or a philosophy. Uh, as, as a storyteller and a filmmaker, what kind of opportunity does that provide? You know, I think that it provides a real opportunity to very candidly engage in like work that's meaningful and be paid. I mean, there's something really... Um, doing good and doing well. Imagine yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's something that can't be, you know, we definitely have our feet in, in both arenas deeply um, in terms of, you know, uh, doing the independent documentary work, writing the grants, creating kind of structures to support independent film. But if we're really looking as an industry, or I'll say personally, at real sustainability for 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 a life um, outside of exclusively kind of like teaching and doing independent documentary, I think where where can you find ways to do meaningful filmmaking? And have and have a career for us. Branded content has been an incredibly interesting space to be in, and I think each filmmaker probably has to do some evaluation per project. If you are coming from a documentary perspective, some people coming from an advertising perspective might not have that same kind of list of concerns. Like, do I feel like this is an authentic story? Do I feel like this is still kind of within my value space? But I'll say, you know, we work a lot with BBC, their StoryWorks division, and. I really have so much respect for kind of the work that we've done with them and still kind of going through the fact checking, going through kind of the journalistic protocols, albeit paid for by a brand and paid for to endorse kind of a lifestyle of a product. But what's been really fun is to be able to look at, again, like a place. I'll say we've done most of our work in the tourism space with them and say, what would be an interesting way to share stories about this place. And so that's kind of maybe like the job that would come into our lap and say, okay, we want to celebrate this, um, this location's food or this location's fashion. Can you find real people who could illuminate that? And so then we'll put on our kind of um, documentary hats and say, okay, who would, who would interesting characters be? So we did like a series on Seoul, Korea with that kind of lens. And so we found, you know, uh, an interesting fashion designer that did sustainable fashion, an interesting chef um, that brought his kind of local cuisine and he immigrated to Seoul. And so those are really fun storytelling opportunities where you get to go to a place, um, create kind of mini documentaries, and then, you know, hopefully, in, you know, interest people in, in the location and introduce them in kind of cross-cultural travel. And as a filmmaker, do it with a little bit of, you know, a different, a different lens than you would have if you were doing something that was long form. So you're also, I think, looking for a story bandwidth that can be a little bit shorter because it's going in a two or three minute piece, sure. not, you know, an hour long piece. And so from a storytelling perspective, that's also really fun right. to say, okay, this is a great story. It doesn't maybe require a 90 minute film, but it's a really fun little capsule. Yep. Yeah. And it seems that the brands that are kind of most positive, mo- most confident in their own presentation are more likely to make that type of an investment in solidifying a a relationship with their consumers, with their client base, so that the branded content is an indication that they're both listening to what resonates with their consumer and client base and also kind of reminding them that as, that even as, you know, as a corporation, as a for-profit um, uh, business, they stand behind a particular set of values. Yeah, absolutely. And they, I think, 
as um, you know, everyone has become more and more visual in the way that they um, learn about things. I think video has really come to the top of, um, you know, the ways people are doing that in terms of sharing those brand values. So when we last spoke, uh, you um, uh, you were bringing me up to speed on when, where things stood with a couple of documentary uh, projects, um, mm-hmm. How I Live mm-hmm. and Down With X. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you, uh, first of all, for those listeners who aren't familiar with either one of those, give a little bit of a synopsis on each and um, let us know where things stand currently. Sure, yeah. So How I Live is a documentary um, that looks at global childhood cancer and the disparity, both the disparity and survival rates um, between kind of high income and low income countries, but also kind of how countries have worked together to raise survival rates of kids worldwide. So it's a heavy topic, but a real uplifting actual kind of story. I'll talk about that one for a few minutes, and then I'll hop over a minute or two, and then I'll hop over to Down With X. So for how I live, the way that we got into the subject matter of childhood cancer was that my brother was a childhood cancer patient at Dana-Farber Boston Children's. And so we formed some pretty significant, you know, relationships and bonds with his caretaking team there. And we doing a lot of global work, we started to learn a little bit about what the global statistics look like and how there was this, you know, 80% of kids in high income countries survive while only 20% of kids in low income countries survive. And we thought, what is driving that um, differentiator? And what are you know, what's going on behind the statistics. And so we followed five, five families through their childhood cancer treatment over four and a half years. And that is the film, How I Live. I will now be joined by my newborn. And there's your cue. <laughs> I know. Um, and I will now be joined by my three-month-old son, Ryan. Well, that's good. I got a lot of questions for him. Excellent. And so he'll go on screen now. Um, I do the hardest hitting infant interviews in the business. So he's he's ready for it. He's been prepping all week. Um, and so, we, you know, we started doing film festivals with that film. Then 2020 and the pandemic hit. And in addition to film festivals, we knew we really wanted to share that film in an educational way and do um, kind of impact screenings in communities that we thought would be relevant to the film. So healthcare, nursing, psychosocial um, students, and also kind of um, professional communities. And so we've been working with Dr. Arini Albanti at the Harvard Humanitarian Institute, also with um, a graduate student at the Harvard School of Public Health, the T.H. Chan School, to pivot from like a traditional film, her name's Kendall Carpenter, by the way, um, to to pivot from like a traditional, you know, everyone um, bodies in seats screening to doing a series of remote educational screenings with students Right now, it's around kind of the New England area. Um, we just had a screening this morning with Northeastern class. Um, we have Tufts and BU coming up in the next month. Um, is, is that the undergraduate or graduate level? Um, it, it both. So it's a combination. Okay. So our first ones have been undergraduate. And um, we've been using the film in kind of teaching, in a, in a kind of a teaching module format. And then later this, later this year, we'll move into some more kind of traditional screening and then Q&A style formats. And so I mentioned that just because with, you know, you work in a film for a long time, you want to show it to audiences, and then you have a pandemic and no one can be in community in person. And we're, you know, we've seen so many incredible examples of festivals going online and community screenings and, you know, every film will have its own fit. But for us, this has been a really, this has been a really interesting and exciting pivot after kind of a little bit of disappointment at the beginning. 
Yeah, talk about an unintended benefit, really. I know, you know, and it, it's it's quite exciting. Um, we're also recently part of um, the New Day distribution company with that film. And so the, as part of New Day, we'll also be offering the film on Canopy, um, which I know a lot of public libraries um, have subscriptions to. So if your users are interested in seeing the film and looking at kind of how global health collaborations can lead to better survival rates, which is oddly a hot top, you know, a hot, not oddly, but a kind of um, meaningful, I think, in the context of where we are in the pandemic. The film is called How I Live, and it will be available through New Day or on Canopy. Wonderful. Excellent. That's great to know. And then um, to hop over to Down With X, this is um, a really beautiful film that we've been working on for a few years with um, a fashion designer, Isabella Springmull, out of Guatemala. And she is, uh, um, you know, was invited to London Fashion Week. She's been in like most interesting um, Time Magazine, most interesting people to follow. And she is a young woman in her early 20s that combines kind of traditional indigenous designs out of Guatemala with contemporary fashion. And she also happens to have Down syndrome. And so she's just a really amazing young artist and entrepreneur to follow. And also looking at kind of how someone with a disability navigates, you know, the structural barriers that she's faced in her life in Guatemala, but then also kind of um, industry in her industry in the fashion industry. And so we've been filming with her um, in Guatemala and we're planning on filming a lot more with her in Guatemala. So we've done some remote filming with her and we're really looking, we have some, we're co-producing that with the team out of Guatemala. and so they have had, you know, more immediate access with her. But we have postponed our, you know, our trips to Guatemala for obvious reasons and are looking to take those up soon, as soon as it's safe. Um, and if it's not safe for a long time, then we'll be probably working with some more remote filmmaking techniques to keep capturing the story. You know, we've missed being there in person, but I'm sure I'm sure it'll happen again at some point. Absolutely. Well, thank you for bringing us up to speed on that and giving us a a taste of how you've um, kind of pivoted and adjusted during the pandemic. You know, our our podcast is available in audio only, but obviously you and I are on Zoom right now. I kind of wish that we're doing video too, because this is the highlight of my week, seeing this handsome little guy. How old is he? He's three months. and He's three months. Significantly (laughs) sized newborn, I will say. You people listening don't know what you're missing. (laughs) I know. Maybe we can post a little photo, Ryan photo. There you go. Yeah. But I tell you, he joins us on all of our um, How I Live university screenings. Now he's on podcasts. He's going to be well-seasoned professional. By the Absolutely. Time. What do they say? Never, you, you never want to follow a uh, cute pet or a cute cute kid act. So who's ever coming up after you that has their work cut out for them? Yeah, tough one, right? <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. And, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. And Mr. Ryan... You have a fantastic day. Going to give you back to your mom all yourself. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. All right. Be well.